Good morning, church. We're going to be in Psalm 126 this morning. If you want to grab your Bibles, your phones, device, whatever you're using, Psalm 126. As you turn in there, I just want to welcome again our guests. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Strong Tower. You came on a good Sunday. Uh, Not only did you come despite a lack of sleep, uh, but you came on a Sunday where we have starting point after church. And starting point is an opportunity for you to take about 10, 15 minutes, learn more about who we are right after service, uh, ask questions, just get to know a little bit about us. It's right next door in the gym. So after service, I'll remind you again, but if you got 15 minutes, we would love to get to know you and talk about our church, and I would love to meet you. Psalm 126, you might know that we are going out of order, uh, if you've been here for our series. This is because this was a sermon I was supposed to preach two weeks ago, and uh, our, our brother Brandon earned his licensure for preaching. Two hours before the, the service, I was dying, deathly ill, and Brandon offered to preach. So uh, thank you, Brandon. And it, it was a good sermon, especially with two hours of prep. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, So we're going to run back Psalm 126. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Psalm 126, hear the reading of God's word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag this text this morning, a dream deferred, a dream deferred. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grace this morning. We sang earlier, hallelujah, you are the one who deserves it. You are the one who saved us. You're the one who's healed us. You're the one who's provided for us. You're the one who made us. All things are to your glory. And God, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would set our hearts upon you. Take our minds off of the trouble. Take our minds off of our sin and our failures. Take our minds towards you, that we might praise you and glorify you for who you are. Make our souls glad today. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Langston Hughes was a central figure in the Harlem Renaissance back in the 1920s and and going forward. And if you're not familiar with the Harlem Renaissance, it was a time in Harlem where basically black artistic life was thriving. Uh, Different artists and poets and, and people were being raised up during that time and speaking into the culture and Langston Hughes had a particular voice through poetry about uh, just the, the joys and the, the difficulties and just life as a person in the black community, the working class of Harlem. And so he asked one of these famous questions in American poetry in, in a poem he entitled Harlem. And he asked this question that, that has been echoing throughout our culture, and the question was, what happens to a dream deferred? 
What happens to a dream deferred? And you can hear the echoes throughout our culture in even Dr. King's speech, I Have a Dream. You hear it in modern day where you hear about the Dream Act and different movements. And and it's the question that Langston Hughes brought up. And it kind of echoes through our culture, asking the question over and over again. And I want to read this brief poem uh, in its entirety. It's only a few lines. And this poem has, has had a huge impact on American poetry and culture. He says this, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? And he's wrestling with this tension of, of what many have called the American dream, right? Langston Hughes, as, as a young black man growing up in, in Harlem, he's, he's wrestling with this idea that he's heard in the culture that if you work hard, you can do anything. If you work hard, you can be anything. If you work hard, all your dreams can come true. And, and he looks back on his experience, and he looks back on the experience of his people throughout history in our nation and he's struggling with the idea of a dream. How, how could this be true? He's, he's thinking through, you know, black people, whether you want to believe it or not, have worked hard throughout our history to build this nation. Black people throughout our history have worked hard to serve our nation many times without a vote for our nation. And so he is wrestling with this tension. What, what do I do with this dream that I hear about and my experience? What do I do with my pain and this promise? And ultimately, what do I do with that dream if it's deferred? How long can it be deferred? What happens if it's deferred, right? He's meditating on this tension between joy and hardship, dream and reality, hope and waiting. He's meditating on on really the idea, the theme that you see in the book of Proverbs chapter 13. There's this, this verse in Proverbs 13, 12 that says, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. A hope deferred makes the heart sick. Maybe you've felt what he's felt. Maybe you've lived with this dream deferred. Maybe not in the, in the way that he had. Maybe in your own way. Maybe you had a dream for your marriage and 10 years in, you're wondering, can this thing survive? You had a hope for your community and, and you thought you'd be able to make a difference and a few years in, you're, you're realizing this is much bigger than me. You had a hope for your children and now they're grown adults and, and you're wondering, is it worth all that effort we put in? What, what did we do wrong? How, how did this happen? You're living in that tension. You're living in that tension between the pain of what you're experiencing and the promise that you hear. What do I do with that? How long can I go like this? How, how can this happen? And, and you start to wrestle as, as your dream gets deferred. Many times what happens is our joy does too. Our joy gets put off for another time. Our joy begins to diminish as you live with that dream deferred. That, that's what I want to talk about this morning is what do you do with joy when life isn't going the way you thought it would go? We're continuing our series this morning called On the Way, and and we've been looking through the Psalms of Ascent. 
And the Psalms of Ascent are, are a group of Psalms right there in, in the book of Psalms where you, you have this collection around an experience. It, it's Psalms 120 to 134, and, and these 15 songs were the songs that they sang on their way to Jerusalem. And so the, the people of Israel would make a pilgrimage a few times a year for the festivals, and they would walk up to Jerusalem, and it was this literal geographical ascent, right? Hence the names, the Psalms of Ascent. They would walk up toward Jerusalem. But as they were walking towards Jerusalem, it wasn't just a physical ascent they were making. It was a metaphor for their whole life. The journey to Jerusalem was a metaphor for what it meant to be on the way towards God, what it meant to be on on this journey upward towards this relationship with God. And so the songs that they sang represented that experience. The songs that they sang kind of represented what it meant to walk on the way with God as you made your way towards him. And, And one of the songs they sang was right here, Psalm 126, that represented this struggle between joy and pain. How do I have joy? How do I rejoice in the midst of of what I'm experiencing? And that's what I want to look at this morning. How how do you have joy in this difficult road with God? And if you're taking notes this morning, uh, we see that joy begins in the past. Joy begins in the past. So the first point is a joyful past, a joyful past. Look at verse one, and we'll, we'll jump right in. Look at verse one. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream." Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now right here we see that the psalm was written in the midst of of Israel struggling with this tension. Israel is struggling with, with a dream deferred, if you will. If you know the story of Israel, Israel was, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, what's the word? It was invaded by Babylon. It was, it was taken over by Babylon because of their sin. And God sends Babylon to come and, and it destroys their beloved Jerusalem and, and things get terrible. I mean, it just tears the part of the city. Uh, there's rape, there's cannibalism, there's, there's just devastation. And then it ends with this 600 mile trek across the desert all the way to a foreign land where they would spend 70 years in slavery. Seventy years in captivity, separated from God, separated from their land, separated from their people. And then God shows up, and after 70 years, he delivers them from their captivity, brings them back home, and the psalm is written at the the point where they're brought home, right? And so he says, "We're, we're like the people who dreamed. God finally shows up. God meets us in our need. God meets us in our brokenness and our failure. He shows up and, and he says, we're like those who dream. In other words, it's, it's finally starting to happen. Joy is alive again. We can look back and see God has done something today. But what is joy? He says that our, our mouth would be filled with laughter. We, we would have shouts of joy. What, what is joy? In the Christian life, joy is not a requirement. It's, it's a, a uh, consequence. What do I mean by that? Sometimes people think of joy and they think of, you know, I've got to muster up something. I've got to be joyful or God's going to be unhappy. I've got to show that I'm grateful or, or God's going to be, you know, un, unhappy with how I'm, I'm acting. 
And, and joy becomes this thing that I have to produce. Joy becomes this thing I have to do. Joy becomes a work that I have to bring out of me. And, and so we go looking for it. We go try to purchase joy, right? We'll go to the movies. We'll go to, you know, a party. We'll, we'll go hang out with friends. We'll, we'll do something to try to get joy into us because it needs to be something that I produce, something that I bring about because I'm hoping, <clears throat> I'm hoping that I can, I can get past this hardship. I'm hoping that I can kind of ignore what's going on in my life and I can distract myself with these things that I can buy or produce or do. And then if you've ever done that, like me, you know that it doesn't work. And then you go right back to the thing you distracted yourself from, and a lot of times it's worse. The marriage got worse, the friendship got worse, the, the workplace got worse, whatever it was that you were trying to distract yourself from that was causing pain, and it gets worse, and you realize, I can't produce joy. I can't buy joy. I can't purchase it. I can't bring it about by me. It's not a requirement that God has for me. Listen to me. Joy is something that happens to me. Joy is, is a gift. Joy. This is the difference between joy and happiness. Write this down. Somebody said this. I don't know who it was. But happiness is based on what's happening. Joy is based on what happened already. You catch that? Happiness is based on what's happening in my life, in the moment, at the, at the time. But joy is based on something in the past, something that's already happened, that's been given to me. Not something that I produce, but it's been produced in me. And this is what the psalmist knows, and the psalmist begins to look back into the past to find joy. And, and, and he looks back in verses 1 through 3, and in all of its past tense, right? He says, this is what the Lord has done. The Lord showed up in my life. The Lord came and he, he delivered us out of Babylon. He, he restored our fortunes. He brought us out of captivity. He has done this. We didn't do any of this. He did all of it. It's all in past tense. He's looking back to the faithfulness of God. He's looking back to the goodness of God. And he says, there's this explosion of joy. I can't contain it. My, my mouth is filled with laughter. My heart is full of joy. I have to shout about it because God has done it. And then the joy becomes contagious. You catch that? It starts to spread. People in the nations around Israel, they start to hear about it. People who didn't even believe in their God start to say, hey, this God did something special here. And they begin to praise God. And, and there's this spreading, this, this virus that goes out, and, and everybody hears about it. And what's amazing is if you know the story of Israel, this is what God created Israel for, that they would be a light to the nations. But they hadn't been. They failed. And listen, in their failure, God turns it around to do in them what he had purposed to do from the beginning, that he would spread his name among the nations. You didn't catch that. What God was doing in them is how he was going to work through them. God was working in their failures, in their brokenness, in their rebellion. God turns it around to say, I'm going to make my name known among the nations because of who you are because of me. I have restored you. I have saved you. I have done all of this, and I will get the glory. And the joy will be contagious. And listen, his past goodness becomes their present tense gladness. What he has done in the past 
begins to affect how they feel in the present. And so it leads, it leads the psalmist in verse 3 to, to this culmination. He says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Present tense. All that he's done in the past leads to this in the present. In other words, joy builds on the past. Joy builds on the past. Maybe this will help you out. In John chapter 12, there was, there was a story where Jesus was uh, at Mary and Martha's house. And if you know Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha were, were two sisters who were very close to Jesus, very involved in his ministry. And, and they would often go to Mary and Martha's house to just kind of relax and get away from the crowds and have a good meal. And Martha was this phenomenal host. And, and even in this story, you know, Martha's out working and doing stuff and fixing the meal. And, and, and there's the disciples and Mary hanging out at the table just chilling. They're around the table. Everybody's relaxing. You know, back in the day, they didn't have chairs. They, they would literally, in, in their culture, they would lay down on their elbow and just kind of relax and scoop the food into their mouth. That, that's how they ate at the table. So here's Jesus reclined, relaxing. And then out of the blue, Mary decides to get up from the table, walk over to where Jesus is reclining, and she starts to anoint his feet with oil. Nobody knows why. There's no warning. Everybody's looking at her. This, this was the type of thing that, that the servants did as you walked into the house. But, but here's Mary anointing Jesus' feet, not with just any oil, but with the most precious, expensive oil she had. The Bible estimates that it was worth about a year's worth of wages. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars, this, this bottle of oil, which was more like a perfume. It was, it was likely the most valuable thing Mary had ever owned and ever would own. And Mary kneels down at Jesus' feet next to the table. She breaks the bottle. She pours it on Jesus' feet, and she begins to worship him. I mean, that, that's what worship is. It's, it's this expression of worth. It's, it's this expression that, Jesus, you are worth everything that I have. You, you're, you're worth the most valuable possession I own. You, you're worth everything that I, I could ever imagine. And, and so she pours out her worship. The, the place is filling with the aroma of her perfume. And imagine the disciples are sitting right next to Mary as she's doing this and have no clue what's going on. Everybody's puzzled. Everybody's confused. Why are you doing this? Judas is the only one who has the heart to say something. Judas speaks up. And Judas just speaks his mind. He says, why are you wasting all of that money? We could have sold that perfume, given it to the poor. What are you doing? Why would you do this? This doesn't make any sense. You can find some other way to show your worship. You can find some other way to give your expression of worth. Why, why would you waste all that money? It made no sense to Judas and the disciples why she would worship. But in order to understand Mary's worship in chapter 12, you have to go back to chapter 11. In chapter 11, Mary lost her brother. In chapter 11, Lazarus, her brother, died unexpectedly. Suddenly, she lost her, her friend. Her, you know, she was close to Lazarus. She loved Lazarus. She had no time to plan for this. She had no expectation this was coming. All of a sudden, she wonders, can my heart heal? What's going to happen? And Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus speaks words of life to this suffering Mary. She says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And he turns to Lazarus and he says to Lazarus, come out. And with those simple words, her brother comes to life. And the moment Lazarus is raised from the dead in chapter 11, something changed in Mary. Something changed in Mary where she could no longer worship the same. She could no longer see Jesus the same. She could no longer be in his presence and not worship him the way that he deserved because something happened in chapter 11 that changes her her worship in chapter 12 because her joy was, was built on the past. It's what God had done in her story. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning is, let me ask you, what has he done in your past? What has he done in your life? What ruins has he delivered you from? What what healing has he seen in you? Because some of you here this morning, he's done amazing things. Some of you here this morning, you wouldn't be here unless God showed up in your life. Some of you, you you tried to ruin your life. You, You tried to run as hard as you could. You tried to rebel against him. You tried to ruin everything you had with him. And all God said is, I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep going after you. I'm going to keep going after you. And he delivered you out. He delivered you out. That's your past. That's your chapter 11. So let me ask you, what does your chapter 12 look like? Is there, is there worship? Is there shouting? Maybe you're uncomfortable with that word. But is, is, there, is there an emotional expression that God has done something in your life? That he's saved you. He's delivered you. He's forgiven you. Your, your shout doesn't have to look like somebody else. Right? The point is not that you look like somebody who el- who's you know, got, experienced something with God that you haven't experienced. The point is that it's genuine to what God has done in you. And so it, it might be that your shout is a hand raised or your shout is a song that you sing or your shout is something else. I don't know what it is, but my point is this. It better be something. If God has set you free, if he's done something in your life, Worthy of praise. And sometimes you might say, oh, Pastor, I'm, I'm in such a dark place. I, I, don't, I don't even know if I can look back and see those things. This, this is where you got to get in the Bible. Sometimes it's so hard. Sometimes it's so dark. you got to go back to the scriptures and find what God did for them. Amen. you got to go back and, and look at Abraham's story and look at how God delivered him out. you got to go back and see Moses and how God delivered Israel out of their bondage. You've got to go back to David and look at how God forgave David in his darkest sin. You've got to go back to Ruth and look at how God loved her in her faithfulness and her love. You've got to go back to Paul in prison as God met his needs every moment by the way. Because somewhere in there, God has done something worthy of your praise. Somewhere in there, there's worship that he's worthy of. Because joy is built on the past. It's not about the present. It's not about what's happening now. It's about what's already happened. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we, we look forward not only to the past, or we look back not only to the past, but we look forward to this joyful future. And this is the second and last point, a joyful future. There's this major turn in verse 4. 
Look at what happens. Verse 4, he says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Right? The first half of the psalm is all past tense. It's all what God has done in the past for them, everything that God had done to deliver them out and bring them back to Israel. And, and then there's this shift that happens. It goes from when the Lord, or yeah, when the Lord restored our fortunes to restore our fortunes, O Lord. In other words, there's this petition that comes out of what's happened in the past. He's saying, God, I know what you did back then, but now we need you to do it again. God, I know how you delivered us back then, but now we need you to deliver us again. I need you to restore me. I need you to heal me. I need you to bring about what you've done because there's still a city to rebuild in Israel. There's still a life that we need to live to God's glory. There's still a hope that needs to come into reality. And so the dream is, is not yet. We see the, the reality of what we call the already not yet right here in the text. That, that means that God has already restored them in one sense, but he's not yet fully restored them. He still has work to do. Sometimes you can call it the, the three tenses of the gospel, that we were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. It's this ongoing salvation, this ongoing restoration, this ongoing deliverance that God does. And and the poet here, he gives two powerful images about how God brings about this restoration. First, he says it's going to be like the streams of Negev. Now, if if you know about uh, the geography of Israel, Negev is is this vast desert south of Jerusalem. And, And it was just you know, arid and and lifeless. It was bone dry, baked in the sun. There was no vegetation, no green, no signs of any life. The Negev is not where you want to be unless there's rain. And a few times a year, a rain cloud would come and it would dump rain in the Negev and this arid, you know, devastating place would turn into a lush garden. The rain would turn into a river that ran through the middle of the Negev and there would be flowers and blossoms and trees and and it turned into this beautiful place and it happened sometimes within 48 hours. And, And what the psalmist is saying is, he's saying sometimes our life is like that. Sometimes our life is arid and broken and, and there's no signs of life and everything seems like it's terrible and then God shows up and he showers us with grace and there's this flood of change that happens and transformation is all over the place. And he's praying for that. Hear that? He's, he's praying that God would show up like a flood. But then he says another way that God more commonly works in verse 5. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In other words, what he's saying is, sometimes God works like a flood, but most of the time God works like a farmer. Most of the time God works by sowing. And what he's saying is this this slow process of sowing where, what are we sowing? We're, We're sowing our tears. We're sowing our tears over our sin. We're sowing our tears over our failures. We're sowing our tears over the injustice in our community. We're sowing the tears over the brokenness in our family. We're sowing tears, he says, because that's how the Christian life works. Christian joy is not a denial of sorrow. Christian joy is not a, a you know, put away all the pain and just pretend like it's not there. Christian joy lives in that tension. 
the reality of our broken world and the hope of the gospel. But here's what makes Christian joy different than anything else the world can provide. The sorrow of this life cannot rob us of the joy that God gives. That the joy that God gives is promised right here, right here. It it says that we will sow in tears, but we will reap in joy. That there's coming a harvest in the field. There's coming a flood in the desert. And sometimes he comes quickly, but often he comes slowly. But whenever he comes, there will be a flood of joy. There will be a harvest of rejoicing. Joy is on its way. And so the psalmist is reaching into the future promises of God and pulling them into the present to say, God, I need the joy that you're going to provide now. I need my heart to know the joy of what's coming. I need my mind to know the joy of what's coming. I need my hands that are working diligently to know the joy that's coming Because not only does joy build on the past, it borrows from the future. It borrows from what God promises will come. We see it even in our Savior. As Jesus made his way to Calvary, what was he doing? Sowing in tears. Jesus made his way to Calvary and on his way meets Lazarus as we just spoke about. And Lazarus, one of his dear friends, he he smells the stink of death and he weeps. He moves on from there and he makes his way to Jerusalem. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he looks out upon this city that had no shepherd, who had no guide, who had no hope in God. And he sees their sin. He sees their brokenness. He sees us. And he weeps. Jesus weeps. But the Bible says that that's not what led him to the cross. It wasn't his weeping. It was his joy. Hebrews 12 says it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. In other words, it it wasn't Jesus' present suffering that that made him endure. He would have given up if it was that. It wasn't his presence that gave him joy. It was borrowed from the future. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the stripes on his back. It wasn't the nails in his hands or his feet. It wasn't the crown of thorns on his head. It wasn't the, the abandonment of his friends or the shame of his exposure. It wasn't the weight of our sin on his shoulders. None of that helped him endure. It was the joy set before him that he was about to die for us to make all things right. It was the joy set before him that he was about to give his life for his enemies to bring them in as family. It was the joy set before him that he was about to set all things right that all creation might know he's God. It was the joy set before him that even death couldn't defeat him. Right? Jesus took our place on the cross with all of our shame all of our guilt, and he, and he sowed it into the ground. He literally went to the grave, to the depths of hell for us. And, and as Jesus sowed into the ground my failures, your failures, the, the whole world's injustice, he, he sowed it into the ground and heaven wept for three days. But on Sunday when he got up, all creation rejoiced. All creation rejoiced that this God can't be defeated. This God can't be overcome. This God can't be beat. Jesus knows the joy comes because we have a God who overflows in joy himself. And so listen, all suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all failure, all disappointment is seed. 
I'll say it again. All suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all failure, all disappointment is seed. And so whatever you've done, however long you've done it, whatever you've failed in, however big it may feel, however, however despairing you might be, it's seed if it's sown into God. It's seed that is promised a harvest of joy. That we have a God who, who brings a flood in the desert. We have a God who brings flowers out of dryness. We have a God who brings harvest in a famine. We have a God who, who knows how to wipe away every tear. As Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. We sow in tears, but we will reap in joy, because Jesus is alive. And so we pray, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Do it again, God. About 70 years ago, if you would have walked down the Florida coastline around 6 p.m., you would have seen an old man with a white bucket. And this old man would have been sitting there, and, and if you look closely, there would have been a, a swarm of seagulls flying above his head, and, and, and you would have seen the white bucket was full of shrimp. And he was throwing these shrimp up to the seagulls. He's tossing them up. And the old man's name was Eddie Rickenbacker. Eddie Rickenbacker was a World War I veteran, a veteran pilot, and, and was well-known in the time as, as kind of a hero of the war. And, and he had retired and moved to Florida, and, and uh, he decided that, that he, he wasn't quite done yet. He, he wanted to go on one last mission. And so he writes the president a letter and asks if he can go on one last mission, and the president grants him his request, and the president sends him down to the South Pacific with a crew of people. And so he goes down to the South Pacific with his crew, and, and they're there for a little while, and on their way back, their plane malfunctions, and they crash. They crash in the middle of the Pacific, and they don't know where they are. No one knows where they are. They're lost at sea, and they're all stuck on this little yellow raft. A few days go by. No food, no water. The guys are starting to panic. Everybody's wondering, what are we going to do? And people are starting to get violent and upset. And so Eddie grabs everybody together and kind of has a little come-to-Jesus meeting. They, they pray. They talk through it. He tells them, you know, gives them a little pep talk, tries to encourage them. But in the back of his mind, he thinks, I don't know what's going to happen either. I don't know how we're going to survive. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. This seems like we're all going to die together. But after they pray, he leans back in his, his yellow raft and a seagull taps on his head. He looks up. He sees it's a seagull. Instinctively and desperately, he turns around, grabs the seagull with his bare hands and kills it and decides he's going to pluck it and cut it up and feed his guys with this little seagull. They use the, the leftovers to, to fish, and, and they're able to catch a few fish. And listen, this, it had been eight days when he caught the first seagull. 24 days go by. At sea. Every day they're trying to catch seagulls. Every day they're trying to catch fish. And God kept providing one after the other after the other. And after those 24 extra days, somebody finally shows up and they're rescued. And all but one of them survived. I mean, it was a miracle, absolute miracle. And so if you go back 70 years ago and you walk down the Florida coastline and you see Eddie Rickenbacker and you see him there with his little white bucket and you see him with the seagulls flying above his head. And you see him throwing the shrimp up to, 
for them to catch them. If you, if you get in just a little bit closer, just close enough to hear what's going on, you'll, you'll hear him whisper this. With every shrimp that he tossed up, you'll hear him say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because Eddie Rickenbacker knew that when somebody dies for you, when somebody gives their life for you, it moves you to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's joy unspeakable that comes out. It's joy uncontainable. What what happens to a dream deferred? For those who wait on the Lord, there's an explosion of grace, an explosion of joy. Maybe you're here this morning and and you've been sowing in tears and it feels like you've run out of tears. You don't know how many more you can sow. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus weeps with you that he's close to the broken heart, the Bible says. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That he comes right up next to you and he sits with you and he'll wait till the harvest comes with you. Because he knows what it's like to wait. He knows what it's like to endure. But he knows what it's like to hold on to hope in the middle of it. And he'll sit there, right there with you, just like he did on the cross. He didn't leave the cross and he's not going to leave you now. He'll be with you to give you joy that doesn't make sense to anyone else around you, but if they knew your past, if they knew what God has done, they would see it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. And so we say thank you. We say thank you. Open our eyes, God, to see how you've provided. Open our eyes, God, to see how you've loved us. Open our eyes, God, to see the many things you've delivered us from that We've forgotten about. You've restored us in so many ways, and and we live so focused on the present that we, we can't even remember them. All we can feel is the present pain. All we can see is the failures we've done. God, open our eyes. Bring a flood. Like streams in the Negev, oh God. Flood us with grace. Fill us fresh. Lord, that you would do it for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.